Steve. Man, I am excited about this morning, but I have to confess I am extremely nervous, and it'll become very evident to you why I'm nervous in a little while. And no, I'm not singing, so that's not going to happen. I want to talk... Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I want to talk to you today about one of our core values as a church. It's a core value that says we believe that the work of the church is first and foremost prayer by which all other work is led, empowered, and supported. And specifically today, I want to focus on the part that says we believe that the work of the church is first and foremost prayer. If we made a list of all of the work of the church, I'm sure that the list would be about as long as my arm, and that list, it would surely include the work of prayer. But I want you to see that this core value, it sets the work of prayer apart from every other piece of work that the church does. We hold tightly to this foundational belief that not only is prayer a work of the church, but that it must be first and foremost above all of the other work. We believe that it must be first, as in first in order, first in line, so to speak, in what the church does. And we also believe that it must be foremost, as in there is no other work that the church can do that would supersede prayer in importance. We hold firmly that only as prayer leads and empowers and supports all of the other work, that God's very best desires, his very best results in the work of the church can be realized. And with what we believe to be at stake in the body of work in the local church, which is a person's eternal destiny, and in experiencing the fullness of life that Jesus came to offer them here and now, that us being faithful to this core value is the difference maker. And we think that there's great need and there's great opportunity for the church at at large to be involved in this core value. It must be involved. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, it says, we are confident that he, that's God, that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. This passage underpins this core value, that as we pray, as we seek and ask God first and foremost for his, de- his desire and his direction for our church, for what to do and how to do it, for what not to do, that he honors that request and he richly blesses the work. And we've seen there are three primary ways in which this core value, this work of prayer, it gets expressed in our church. And I'm going to blow through the first two of them this morning because I really want to focus on the third one. But the first way that we see this core value of prayer being first and foremost among the work of the church is that it's expressed simply through personal prayer. It's expressed simply through personal prayer. For example, it is vital that our church worship leader, Mark Hale, that he's consistently lifting up in his personal prayers uh, requests for God's guidance and for his provision for the music ministry that we have. And Mark will tell you that the work goes so much better when God is on the front end of that. And the same is true for every one of our ministries and activities, for our staff, for so many of our volunteers that are involved in the work of the church, that their individual personal prayers will give God space to lead and empower and support their respective work within the work of the church. And that as they do that, the effect and the results of that work will, gain, will benefit greatly. And we expect 
that I dare say all of the staff uh, would do that. But what about you? I mean, you would expect this. That would be logical for the staff. Many of you in this room, you're serving in various works of the church. Do you do that as you approach that work? In your personal prayers, are you lifting up petitions to God for the work that you're going to do? Or do you just kind of go with the flow? Or do you just kind of assume, well, surely somebody else has prayed for it? And so we see great potential for us as the church at large to get deeply involved in personal prayer around the work of the church. Would you do that? And then this second expression that we see in this core value, it's where small collections of people, they come together to pray on behalf of the work of the church. And it happens so often. It happens in the individual ministries, the, the ministry staff teams and their volunteers, or on our leadership team or on our board, for example, where pockets of people are constantly praying specifically for the various aspects of the work that God calls the church to do. And we take heart in what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. He says, I tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered together as my followers, I am there among them. Why did Jesus offer that? It seems that he wants to make this point that as the impact of multiple people coming together to agree in prayer, it gets multiplied It gets multiplied. You guys ever see the band here in the corner praying before the music starts? They come up here and they pray, or first and foremost for them it's prayer. Or our team in Spark, but you're anxiously waiting for them to open the doors. And then they're in there circled up in prayer. A group of people praying first and foremost for the work. Two expressions of this this, uh, activity of prayer in our work. We need people to be, we need you to be prayer cops as you're part of these serves, ensuring that prayer is leading the work effort. We, we um, had a new member join our worship arts team back at the beginning of this year, and he became part of our uh, weekly production review and planning meeting. And I usually launch those meetings, and so he, the, after the first couple of weeks of us being in there, he just kind of says, um, Shouldn't we pray before we start these meetings? And I'm like, Oh. What a great idea. And we get so caught up in just getting into doing the work that we forget to invite God first and foremost to use prayer to enable the work. And so, Joe Garza, thank you so much for, uh, for raising your hand. There's great opportunity for us. You guys, as you serve, you need to be prayer cop, cops in, the, in, your, um, in your activities of work. And then there's this third expression of this work of prayer um, maybe it's not so familiar to you that I really want to foc- on, focus on this morning. And it's this activity of corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. It's simply defined as a large number of God's people being united in prayer over a specific cause. Corporate prayer is a large number of God's people being united in prayer over a specific cause. Now I'll clarify a couple of things about this definition. Large is a relative term. Large could be 15 or 20 people. Large could be a million people, like they see in corporate prayer activities in South Korea. Large is relative. And I also want to clarify that corporate prayer, it may mean that the people are gathered in one place, but it may also mean that there are people gathered together in the spirit of unity, and no matter where they are, and no matter what time they're praying, that as they're engaged in this very focused, very specific prayer around some cause, that there's corporate prayer going on. I'll give you an example of that. 
when we have our Catalyst Retreat weekends, we often literally have hundreds of people praying for the weekend. And they do that in their own space and on their own time. But because they're united in the nature and even the content that we give them to guide their laser-focused prayers, that collective effort becomes the essence of corporate prayer. Does that make sense? And so corporate prayer, it's this large number, whatever that means, of God's people united in prayer over a specific cause. We see it early in church history. There's a story in Acts chapter 12 where the apostle Peter, he's arrested and he's thrown in jail for his public teaching about Jesus. King Herod, he, inputs, he intends to put Peter on this very public display in a trial as this means to squelch this nuisance that the growing church has become. And Peter, he was clearly the evangelistic leader of the church at that time. And Herod, he had bad plans for Peter. And there was so much at stake for the life of the church and for the advancement of the kingdom that large numbers of God's people, they began to unite together in persistent and laser-like focus in their prayers for Peter's situation. Acts chapter 12, verse 5, it says, While Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. And then verse 12 says that, that many would gather in homes, that many would gather praying. That was corporate prayer. And as the story goes on, God miraculously frees Peter from jail. jail. Herod's plans are thwarted. Uh, who knows what course church history would have taken had Herod been successful in demoralizing this movement of the church. Friends, I believe it's no afterthought that God included this emphasis on this corporate prayer dynamic in this passage. And I love how verse 16, it says that when those that were praying for Peter, when they saw him free, they were amazed. It says they were amazed. God consistently does amazing things through this vibrant corporate prayer. And if you study church history in all the stories of powerful movements in God's kingdom, you find the church praying together earnestly, passionately, with laser-like focus. It's corporate prayer. There seems to be some unique gains that come when large groups of God's people unite together to pray about a specific cause. I think that one of the things that's so vital is that it highlights dependence on God. Corporate prayer, it highlights dependence on God. When we see the first examples of corporate prayer in the early church, we have to remember that they found themselves under intense pressure, under persecution from those that were in power around them and from those that were contrary to this new way of life that Jesus had called people to. They were scattered from their homes, from their livelihoods, even from their friends and family. And so necessarily they came together in great numbers and placed themselves under God's sovereignty and his provision, and his protection, because it was all that they had. They had been stripped of any ability to control anything in and of themselves. And so this collective dependency as they gathered together on God became this key characteristic of corporate prayer for the early church. And frankly, friends, the level of hostility and aversion in our culture to the way of life that Jesus is calling us to live is increasing every single day. And if we're brutally honest, in and of ourselves, we got nothing. 
We have nothing at all. We have little chance, chance to withstand the pressure and the attacks that this culture that is so adverse to Jesus will place on us without deep dependence on God. It is critical. In corporate prayer, it drives dependence on God. And then there, there was this other key gain from corporate prayer. It was this profound growth in agreement and unity among the church. Profound growth in agreement and unity among the church. Corporate prayer, it builds unity among the people. And that's very, very powerful. I think there's something about our human nature, which I think with, with God himself has fashioned, that gives us boldness and courage and resolve when we feel the strength in numbers. And with almost, without almost exception, you see people that are involved in corporate prayer. They're really invested in corporate prayer. Those, they get put on divine steroids in the sense of individual ownership and accountability and passion and selflessness in their relationship with God. And when you put a bunch of those people together, amazing things happen. But to be effective, it's not just about agreement and unity among the people. Corporate prayer has to be about agreement and unity about a specific cause. It's no surprise that the Catalyst Retreat is arguably one of the most powerful works of the church here at FCC. In advancing the kingdom, it is covered in passionate corporate prayer. And as I read about corporate prayer, some of the decline that it has seen in, America, uh, seen in American churches and it has seen significant decline has come from this sloppy approach to it. When it's not organized around a specific cause where much is at stake, it just becomes this potpourri, I can't believe I use that word, of personal prayer about Aunt Sally's bunions and about what color the paint on the new church building should be and the energy and the engagement it's just leaked out of corporate prayer in our culture. But when corporate prayer is organized with laser focus around a specific cause where there is much at stake, it has launched incredible action and movement in God's kingdom. And the agreement and the unity built among the church has been key. That's key. And then there's this phenomena about corporate prayer where it seems to multiply power. Corporate prayer multiplies power. It seems like in certain circumstances, the realized power of God is exponentially multiplied in its effect and its results as more people are engaged in the work of prayer. I want to share an Old Testament passage with you that demonstrates the multiplying effect of the realized power of God as his people are united in a purpose. And, and I'll confess, this may be a stretch for me to use this passage because corporate prayer was not the specific context for this verse. But I prayed, as I prayed about using it, I just sensed sense this peace that the underlying truth that it reveals is relevant to this multiplying effect of God's power that's realized in the work of the church through corporate prayer. And so Leviticus chapter 26, verses 7 and 8, it says this, you will chase down your enemies and slaughter them with your swords. How cool is that going to be, right? Yes. No, we're really not, not going to do that. We're really not going to do that part. But here, get this part. Seriously, get this part. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase a thousand. 
10,000, I'm sorry. Five of you will chase 100, and 100 of you will chase 10,000. Do you see the multiplication of power? If five can chase 100, that's like a 1 to 20 ratio. But if 100 can chase 10,000, that's, that's a 100 multiplier that's in play. That's like 1 to 100. Do you see the exponential increase in the realized power of God in that? There isn't this linear growth effect as you add people. There is this exponential growth effect when more people are involved. Can you see that in that passage? And it seems to me that it's reasonable for us to expect that as corporate prayer unites the church together in a specific cause or purpose, that God would exponentially multiply the realized power of his effect on the work when many people are involved. Would you buy that? And so, friends, I couldn't be more certain as I'm standing here right now that God is calling our church to this new level of corporate prayer in a very specific way. That corporate prayer would be this vibrant part of the work of our church. In early 2016, God launched this new corporate prayer initiative here. We've called it this top three prayer initiative, and it started all the way back in January as church leadership since this new season was emerging for FCC. There was this clear vision that God was calling us to turn up the focus and intentionality on the work of reaching the unbelieving community around us. And so first and foremost, we needed to turn up the focus and the intentionality of prayer. And so this initiative, it started out with a challenge to a group of 30 new church members out of a membership class that was held back in, 30, in February, just to simply send us the first name of maybe up to three people that God felt, that they felt like God might be using to make Jesus known. And the challenge, it was really just this invitation to be a part of a targeted prayer effort that would energize the heart and the action of FCC's people introducing people to Jesus. And then we extended the invitation to all our church, current church members and then to attenders of our Reach Evangelism Workshop in April. And this corporate activity, this corporate prayer activity, included both this where you are, how you are kind of activity, just in your own time and space. But as well, two Saturdays ago, we had our very first prayer and worship gathering around this effort. About 60 people gathered in the foundry two Saturday nights ago, and we prayed with laser-like focus around this cause and we worshiped together, and we ate together. And it was a powerful, powerful thing. It was different than anything we've ever did, different than anything we'd ever done before, but it was powerful. And we know that that's just the tip of the iceberg of what God is calling us to do through this movement at FCC. All right, so here's where I get really nervous. This morning, I want to lead us in a time of corporate prayer around the same cause, And then to use it as a means of then inviting you to prayerfully consider becoming a more formal part of it. And so I'm going to invite Mark Hale uh, to come up here. He's going to help me out a little bit. And I'm going to have to sit down for this so I don't fall down. Um, And I recognize this, that for some of you, maybe many of you, this is going to be really awkward. It it was awkward the the other night too because it was different than anything we've ever done uh, before on a Sunday morning but it has the potential to be powerful and stirring. Okay, so you ready? You ready to do this with me? All right, here we go. I want us first to be reminded and for us to agree a 
upon God's sovereignty, upon his ultimate authority and power over all things, that we would agree to place full dependency on him. Because the truth is we're compelled to move and to act in our lives by the person who we consider to have the authority over us, by the person who we think knows best and wants best for our lives. And for many in the room, you know that you've claimed that authority and that position for yourself. And that makes perfect sense for those that may, maybe have not yet given Jesus, Jesus leadership over their life. But there are many in this room who profess Jesus with their mouth and yet have for all intents and purposes reclaimed for themselves control and authority over their life. And that makes God's work in them and through them ineffective. And so let's just recenter ourselves for a moment on who really is and who really should be in control. I want to look at a passage that will be on the screen from 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12. And as I read it, allow the words of truth to permeate into your mind and into your heart. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours. O Lord, this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. You rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand. And at your discretion, people are made great and given strength. Consider those words deeply. And here's where it gets awkward. If you would be willing to allow God the rightful control and authority over your life, then I want you to read aloud with me an affirmation statement that's going to be up here on the screens. I believe that God, through Jesus Christ, has authority over everything. I believe he knows what is best and wants what is best in all things. Therefore, I give him control. You did it. You did it. Now pray with me. Pray with me. God, as your church, we unite in agreement that you are the one that really does own the power and the authority over our lives. And that you always wield that power and authority for our personal and collective good, even in those times where we don't clearly see it. Therefore, we place our full dependency on you, personally and collectively, and willingly we relinquish control over all things to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now contemplate this reality with me. The Bible says that there are these spiritual and eternal realities called heaven and hell. Scripture says that there is an eternity with God in heaven where every tear is wiped away and there will never again be death or sorrow or crying or pain where there is nothing but love and joy and peace and goodness of every kind. But there is also this eternity separated from God in this place that the Bible calls hell, where there is no longer any remaining hope that the pain and the crying and the sorrow will ever end, where there is absent forever any goodness of any kind. There are going to be two scripture passages on the screen that we've combined, John 3:16 and Luke chapter 19, verse 10 that I'm going to read, and as I do, just consider the profound truth in them. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son 
so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Be stirred to the core that God wants every person to find forgiveness and eternal life in heaven through his son Jesus. That it was Jesus' very own words that said that his very purpose for coming, his, the very purpose for his humiliating, excruciating death on the cross was to seek and to save those lost to God's promised eternal life. And while that truth, it applies to all humanity, it is meant to be very, very personal. So in this moment, ask God to bring to your mind and to your heart the faces of those that are in your circle of influence, family, friends, co-workers that you know or you sense have not yet received Jesus' gift of salvation. Close your eyes for a moment if it helps and picture their faces in your minds. May your heart be broken for the state of brokenness that exists in their relationship with God. May you come to grips with the reality that their eternity may very well right now be destined for this terrible place that the Bible calls hell. Consider for a moment what the worst day in your life felt like and imagine them experiencing an eternity of days like that. Should they not invite Jesus to be their Savior and their Lord before they take their last breath in this physical life? And then consider the frailty and the uncertainty of this physical life. How in a moment, those that think they have a lifetime of days ahead of them may have but a few days due to unforeseen circumstances that lead to physical death, a car accident, an illness, an angry person, a flooded road. Friends, there is so much at stake. This cause is so great for each of these that you have thought of this morning. But take heart that Jesus, that, that God sent Jesus on mission to seek and to save them. And so if you would, read with me this affirmation statement of truth that is going to be on the screen. And as you get to the end, mentally place the name or the face of that person that you've been thinking about into the blank space. That'll be up here if you'll put it up here. Thank you. Read with me aloud what comes up. We believe that Jesus came to seek and to save those that are lost. I believe Jesus came to seek and to save. Who is it for you? Who is it for you? Jesus came for them. Might you feel that hope in your heart? And now pray with me. Father in heaven, as your church, we unite in agreement that your heart burns with white hot passion for every person that has ever lived. But more personally, that your heart burns with white hot passion for the people that have just now been considered across this room. May we be freshly captured by the reality that it was for that person that Jesus came to die and to suffer so that they would not perish but have eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
And now consider the scripture that is on, going to be on the screen here from Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Hold deeply to the truth that this wasn't a request from Jesus, but it was a command. Consider how in God's sovereignty, in his infinite and perfect wisdom and purpose, he has enlisted the church, which is defined as everyone that calls themselves a follower of Jesus, to be about the work of making Jesus known. And so one final awkward moment, if you would, let us affirm that truth together as we read from the screens. We believe that God has commissioned every Christ follower to be about the business of introducing people to Jesus so that they may become fully devoted followers of him. And now just pray with me. On behalf of the global church and even our local church, we repent of leaving this work of making disciples to only a few. For we know that this mission to go is central to our very being and to our identity in Christ. And we are ready personally and collectively to claim our responsibility, Lord. Father, as your local church, we deeply desire to see your movement reach the lost here in the Bay Area of Texas and that this movement would be met with stunning, amazing results. We want to be part of something great that you wish to do. And so use us, Father. Use me as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for doing that with me. I believe that what we did this morning will be a difference maker in God's kingdom. And I want to invite the rest of the band to come up to join Mark for a final song. And I want to invite you to just consider whether you would be a part of this movement that God has started by emailing me the first name of the person or the persons that came to your mind as we went through that exercise. Would you do that? Would you be so bold as to do that? That we might include you, that we might include them in our focused prayers around this movement that we believe that God has taken. Would you take that risk? My email's on the back of the program. And in addition, we believe that God has many more in this room that would be compelled to be a part of this prayer team. You've seen in the program for months now this new prayer initiative we've started. And that's been an invitation to invite people to be a part of this prayer team around this collective effort, around this collective cause. If God would prompt you, even as you sit here now, to be a part of the, pr the specific prayer effort, would you be so bold as to email me and to let me know? And then finally, one last encouragement. If you're sitting here in this room today and you're one that hasn't yet made a decision to follow Jesus, I pray that you would know how deeply he loves you and how deeply he wants you to have eternal life with him, not just in heaven, but fullness of life and all that means here and now. And if you would be so bold and if you wanted to be prayed for and prayed over, would you email me and let me know that you would like that? Again, my email is on the back. Thank you again so much for being a part of this with me today.